welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Beatles Derangement Syndrome. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. Once upon a time, or maybe twice, there was an unearthly paradise called Pepperland. My daughter needs a new phonograph. She wore out all the needles. Besides, I broke the old one in half. I hate the Beatles. But our fantastic Beatle boycott is still in effect. We have not forgotten what the Beatles said. Half of what I say is meaningless. I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong and now it's all this. His statement is untrue. No one is more popular than Jesus. And on the night of the Beatles' appearance in Memphis, they will be destroyed in a huge public bonfire at a place to be named soon. He blew his mind out in a car. Well, here's another clue for you, Mom. The walrus was Paul. Those freaks was right when they said you was dead. The Beatles, the Illuminati. All our messages were subliminal, <laughs> meaning we were, we were sending messages out, all right. When we talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? In Look out, hail to skills, eh? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all good children go to heaven. Dear Mr. Lemon, from information I received while using a Ouija board, I believe that there will be an attempt to assassinate you. The spirit that gave me this information was Brian Epstein. It was in the best interest of the United States to have my dad killed. You become naked. God is dead! Satan lives! Hey, listen, Brian, nobody's asking you to be the Beatles. I felt competitive with the Beatles. Wilson's confidence in his own abilities appears to have been greatly reduced. I'm a loser! When the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper, Wilson raised a proverbial white flag and took himself out of the race. You were in bed for over three years, weren't you? Oh, yeah, two and a half, three years. I was, I, I hibernated. Let me give you one piece of advice. He knows more than you can imagine. Paul, I've got two pills here. Now, you can take the green pill, and your life will continue as normal. Or you could take this little blue pill. What What does the little blue pill do? It's Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> but I also have this other pill. And this pill will lead you down a rabbit hole that will change everything that you know about the Beatles. You may never be the same. I am so intrigued that I, I must go the, the route less taken. Wow, okay. Take it with the beer, I recommend it. Okay. Okay, so what I'm about to tell you, extremely sensitive. A lot of people don't know these things, so my job here is to educate. Did you know that the Beatles were created by the Tavistock Institute as part of the Aquarian Conspiracy? The Beatles were the creation of the Tavistock Institute. 
Kodak was inserted into the Beatles songs, as I've told you, the sea in the sky, diamonds, and so on and so forth. And the word teenager, by the way, is unknown just before the Beatles arrived on the world stage. I was not aware of that. Tavistock created the Beatles as a way to control the youth of America. And they knew popular culture was the best way to reach the most youth, to destabilize the government. The United States government, on the other hand, had the MK Ultra project. Have you heard of MK Ultra? I have not. I thought you were talking about a beer. That's Michelob Ultra? Okay, my bad. MK Ultra is also terrible and evil, but in a different way. Is it less filling? It's more filling, but it fills in the vacuums of your mind. And it's a good thing I'm doing a lot of editing with this. We seem to have discovered the process by which fame is manufactured. Dr. John Coleman believes the Institute's real purpose is to engineer world culture and that the Beatles' popularity was an Illuminati plot to advance the Aquarian conspiracy. You're going, you're way out in left field. (laughs) (laughs) The conspiracy theories and things with the Beatles go to levels that I really don't think anything else has gone into, including Michael Jackson. It's just astounding. There's this conspiracy that the Beatles were part of the Illuminati. I'm not going to get way into what the Illuminati is and all this stuff. I mean, we're, we're just talking about other people's perceptions, not necessarily what we believe. Yeah, I never really followed a lot of that conspiracy stuff, but I, I know that the Illuminati is its something really big with the tinfoil hat crowd. New World Order, right. this kind of thing. A lot of people buy into that, and Beatles are part of that. The reason that John and George are no longer with us is because they have spoken out on the Illuminati. Have you ever heard Paul McCartney come out against the Illuminati? Um, I, I, See, there you go. You know, doesn't that tell you something right there? You might recall how in 1966, John Lennon said that the Beatles were bigger than Christ. I do know all about that, yes. They got death threats, they had boycotts, they had burnings of records, and the KKK said they were going to assassinate him. Mm -hmm. That is part of the reason they quit touring. They played in Memphis, and they had been threatened publicly on TV by uh, Grand Wizard of the KKK saying they were going to do some terrorism to the Beatles. I saw that. That was in that Beatles documentary. The Ku Klux Klan being a religious order is going to come out here the night that they appear at the Coliseum. And we're going to demonstrate with different ways, tactics, to stop this performance. We're known as a terror organization. I think we have ways and means to stop this if uh, this is going to be the case, yes. Well, what, uh, what ways and means? Well, I don't want to say this, but uh, there'll be a lot of surprises uh, Monday night, I believe, when they get here. Another thing was that the audience would throw handfuls of jelly beans at him, which, I, you know, I don't know if the audience is expecting to catch them all in their mouths. I don't know how that, they thought that was a good idea. That, that sounds really irritating. <laughs> well, especially when you've been told that you might be shot to death on stage by the KKK. So you can imagine when a handful of hits the stage, you about jump out of your skin with madness. It got to be such a level of madness that they... There was so much noise at, at the Beatles shows. I mean, because you had all those girls that were just screaming. Right. And, and it had to be... The, the decibels had to be as high as a jet engine. No matter how many monitors they had on them, there's no way they could hear themselves playing. You can't get on stage and play acoustically in front of screaming girls, so you take out the whole Rubber Soul album for the most part, you know? Right. right. One of those youths burning Beatles albums and freaking out about what John Lennon said was a young Mark David Chapman. Really? He went on to assassinate him in 1980. This is a new one on me. Mark David Chapman, also, his father knew John Hinckley's father. John Hinckley attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan months later. That's right. Yeah, that was, yeah, 1980. And that was, and Reagan was in 81. I told you it was going to be a rabbit hole we were going down. We're already in there. Yeah, well, you took the pill, right? I I did. All right, it's kicking in now. (laughs) Here, take these other pills. (laughs) 
This is the Untitled Podcast. When they talk about the whole MK Ultra thing, John Hinckley and uh, Mark David Chapman were supposedly a part of this. Were they paid members? Or? They were not. It's not like Ken Kesey, who's the guy who wrote the lyrics for The Grateful Dead, Robert Hunter. They both were paid MK Ultra volunteers in college. Its goal was to learn how to use mind control. Oh, well, you, government's been looking into that for a very right. long time. With MK Ultra, program was halted when the whole Watergate thing went down. There was apparently Apparently, kind of a government-wide freakout, and a lot of things were destroyed, changed, altered, gotten rid of, and lost forever to history. And some of those things were about MK Ultra. Hmm. Uh, CIA director at the time, I think his name was Richard Helm. He destroyed all of the MK Ultra files. The MK Ultra thing kind of stops cold with Watergate. Okay. After that, Ford, Carter, and Reagan all, by executive order, to basically outlaw the practice of doing what MKUltra had done for... Okay. Which was experimenting with mind control on human beings. That kind of thing makes sense because the, I mean, the government has been, it's been documented that the government has tried different forms of mind control. And uh, including, up to and including experimenting with different, uh, different drugs like LSD and stuff. We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. Yeah. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. Right. But these records that we've uncovered yeah. don't tell the story. They tell pieces of it. I mean, that's all documented, so... The power that music has on the human mind has been well documented for thousands of years. It doesn't surprise me that there was a program in place, but I don't know how effective it... Obviously, if it had been that effective, we might not all be here today. We might all be in, you know, little cubicles wearing the same suit, doing exactly what we're supposed to do. I don't hmm. know. But anyway, I think all those things are interesting. <laughs> <laughs> here, I have another pill. <laughs> That's really interesting stuff because... Well, it, it, it's amazing how, you know, um, a, a kernel of truth here and there can spawn these amazing webs of conspiracy theories. As the bus leaves the town behind and heads for the country, everything begins to change. Well, almost everything. And already the magic is beginning to work. So it's interesting to me how you can piece together all these things. That kind of leads me to the next thing, which is Paul is dead. Nine, right. Number nine. The Paul is dead rumor actually started while the Beatles were still together, but it was at the very tail end. I don't think they had officially broken up. I have on my wall, Life Magazine, The Case of the Missing Beetle, and it says Paul is still with us. And this was an article written in response to the rumors. These uh, reporters went trekking out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know. Is it Wales? I'm not sure where he was living. Um, they go on his farm. He gets mad and is like yelling at him, chasing him out of there. Linda decides, you know what? Maybe it's not a good idea to piss off the press at this point, knowing that, you know, what's about to go down with the Beatles and all this kind of stuff. So they go and they get the guys from the press. They bring them back. And they basically let them interview them and stuff. And so, as you can see from the cover, it's like, 
you know, they took a family picture and all this. And the gist of the article is, you know, there's all these rumors about Paul's being dead. Well, we're here interviewing Paul. He's very much alive. Right. Yeah. And actually, you can see in the picture, he, he looks none too pleased. Paul McCartney of the Beatles, he finally got in front of a camera in Glasgow today to put an end to the speculation that he is no longer among the living. He is. And now the whole world has been apprised of that fact. But the Paul is Dead rumors apparently started from somebody calling a radio DJ and kind of taking him down this rabbit hole of clues about how Paul is really dead and has been replaced by a lookalike. It looks like a funeral. On the grave is a left-handed base in flowers. The old Beatles stand somberly in grief. And that he was killed at the beginning of the recording sessions for Sgt. Pepper. And this is why the Beatles' sound, including Paul's bass, changed so dramatically about this time. Yeah, he blew his mind out in a car. He blew his mind out in a car. Here's another clue for you all, the Wall versus Paul. Well, here's another clue for you. Strawberry Fields Forever. You can hear John in it. It sounds like he says, I buried Paul. I've played this for my kids before and they, they were like, that does sound like I buried Paul. Isn't it, he's saying cranberry sauce? He's saying cranberry sauce. Yes. I don't know why. Cranberry sauce. And it's me going, cranberry sauce. Cranberry sauce. So that's what it says. Just some obtuse John Lennon thing. I, th I think where they were talking about like Thanksgiving coming up, and they said, "John, what do you like most about Thanksgiving?" He goes, "Cranberry sauce." That almost sounded like Sean Connery. <laughs> Is he part of the conspiracy? <sighs> do I have to tell you everything? <laughs> Sergeant Pepper album cover has the Fab Four-looking Beatles in their suits and everything, with their shorter hair, looking sadly down what appears to be a gravesite in front of the new reincarnated Beatles and their colorful costumes and such. There's a million clues, and I'm not going to go through all of them for the sake of the podcast, but it is kind of a fun thing to go and look. The cover of Abbey Road, where uh, they're all walking across the street, but Paul is the only one that's out of step with the other three. And he's barefoot. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's supposed to mean something. Well, too. supposedly they buried people without their shoes and their boots because they weren't something you could just go pick up somewhere. They would reuse the dead man's shoes. The really obtuse ones are of no interest to me. The Abbey Road one, though, is kind of cool because it looks like you have Jesus, you have the preacher, you have Gravedigger, and then you have the body, which is Paul in his suit, yada yada. Yeah, yeah. How many people have been killed crossing that street? And this part you might not know, and I'm going to drop the samples in here and there. Brother Paul, I'm crying. Are you really lying? There were songs recorded that Paul is dead. Are you getting older? Are just getting colder? Brother Paul, where did you fall and are you still alive? There's a song called Brother Paul and So Long Paul. And there was another one, The Ballad of Paul. As Paul McCartney left this world as he'd taken his last breath of John and George and Ringo told us of his death. These were all songs recorded directly because of the Paul is Dead thing. Wow. From Sergeant Pepper to Abbey Road, they left 
There's a song called St. Paul. It was recorded by a guy named Terry Knight. Now, we all know who Terry Knight is, so I won't get way into that. You know, right? I don't. Uh, well, I was joking. Nobody knows. <laughs> Terry... <laughs> Terry Knight went on to manage Grand Funk Railroad. How you don't know that? That was on the tip of my tongue. Well, I brought you in here because I thought you knew something about music. I was, I was thinking there's no way he could be talking about the same Terry Knight. Did I hear you call or was I dreaming then St. Paul? You knew it all along. Something had gone wrong. They couldn't hear your song of sadness in the air while they Here's where the, the conspiracy theories are fucking crazy, man. The publishing company of Terry Knight's song, St. Paul, is Mac Lynn, M-A-C-L-E-N, which is a legitimate publishing company for Lennon-McCartney songs. Huh. So somewhere, somebody somehow published this song about Paul's death on the Lennon-McCartney Publishing Company. And supposedly, that's the only song to ever be under their publishing company, which was not a Lennon-McCartney song. Huh. I have no explanation for that. Now, at the age of 27, he is either a millionaire beetle with a beautiful wife, or he's dead and has been for about two years. All of these things are, you know, humorous to some degree. Of course, you know, Lennon being assassinated, not humorous, but Charles Manson is like a whole other thing. Well, yeah, with a helter skelter. Charles Manson was this pseudo-wannabe hippie criminal who goes to San Francisco and to Haight-Ashbury, finds all these lost and, and homeless and twisted kids, and creates a family out of them by telling them these things. He's older than them. Right. So you can imagine how easy it is to manipulate a 17-year-old hippie who just came from Iowa or something in San Francisco, and here's this dude saying, You're not disposable. Look at you. You're valuable. You're the most valuable and perfect thing in this world. You know, all this kind of stuff, right? right so right. He, he takes advantage of these people and gives them drugs, orgies, typical mind control in a way. And Manson also is supposedly part of this MK Ultra conspiracy. You know, it's the, the late 60s. Martin Luther King has been assassinated. There's all kinds of shit going down. He's saying there's going to be a race war. And I'm getting messages from the Beatles about what to do. And the first thing that convinces him and that he uses to convince the rest of his freaks that they were talking to them was a song called Sexy Sadie. Sexy Sadie, what have you done? had a chick and his nickname for her was Sadie Mae Lutz or something right and he called her Sexy Sadie 
supposedly before the album came out. How do you argue with that? He thought the race war was going to happen, but it wasn't going to happen fast enough and that the Beatles were telling him to get on with it. Get this going, man. He would decipher these things and then he gets, of course, to Revolution 9. Number 9, number 9, number 9, number 9, number 9. It's, uh, what, eight, eight, nine minutes of cacophony and experimental things that I don't know has ever been done to that level of weirdness by a major band at the height of their popularity. Number nine. This is where all the conspiracies kind of collide is all around revolution number nine. Paul is dead. You have the Manson thing. All these things kind of collude with that one song because it, it freaked people out. And the ultimate goal is that the white race will be annihilated and the black race will not know how to handle the power of maintaining the world now. And they'll come ask us to basically rule the world for them. Because why wouldn't you go ask some hippies in the desert to rule the world for you? Well, they, those are the first people you tend to go to when you want to take over the world. It's working for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so I don't know, who would send messages to Bernie Sanders right now? Like the National or something? Or? Uh, yeah, it, it's... It Dude. Yeah. Well, it's right in front of us. What? Kanye. I'm standing up and I'm telling you, I am the number one most impactful artist of our generation. Kanye West versus Charlie Manson. When I stand on the mountain and I say, do it, it gets done. If it don't get done, then I'll move on it. I came here to talk directly to the people so y'all could understand what I'm dealing with. I tried my best to get along in your world. I have decided in 2020 to run for president. A long time ago, being crazy meant something. Nowadays, everybody's crazy. Kanye's sending messages to Bernie, and I think that eventually there'll be something to come out of it that I'll piece together in the editing. Okay, good. I am living in the 21st century. Doing something mean. Do it, do it better than anybody you ever see. Do it, screams from the neighbors. God, and I scream, do it. I guess every superhero needs music. No one man should have all that power. The clock taking, I am just counting hours. Stop tripping, I am tripping off the power. The music to you every day, but you're too deaf, dumb, and blind to listen. In 2009, Kanye West debuted his song, Eyes Closed, live in concert. In the song, Kanye raps, I sold my soul to the devil. That's a crappy deal. This game you could never win, because they love you, then they hate you, then they love you again. This is a song that doesn't rhyme, and it is a big waste of time. Is it possible that Kanye West is referring to an elite organization thought to be manipulating the world's most powerful corporations? Was Kanye perhaps referencing the secret and all-powerful fraternity known as the Illuminati? Yellow matter custard dripping from a dead dog's eye. Sharon Tate was murdered. Sharon Tate's husband uh, was the director. Roman Polanski was her husband. Roman will be here in two weeks. He's doing a film out of a book called Rosemary's Baby, which you should read. It's a fantastic book. I've, I've been to another doctor, and he, he isn't good, Dr. Hill. He's been lying to me and giving me uh, unusual kinds of drinks and capsules. I can't stay too long here. They'll, they'll be coming looking for me. 
Dr. Hill, there's a plot. Roman Polanski had done Rosemary's Baby, the movie, starring Mia Farrow. I think Sharon Tate even had a bit part in that movie. I don't think she did. She didn't? No, I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure she didn't. Okay, I don't know if she had a speaking speaking role, but I, I think she had a bit part in that movie. Well, if you're right, by the time I edit this, I will say you're right. Okay. And if you're not... <laughs> <laughs> then you're just going to rip the shit out of me. God over. help me. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul, but that answer is incorrect. Wrong! You lose! Good day, sir! <laughs> but anyway... We do know Roman Flansky directed it. Mia Farrow starred in it. Right. Now, Mia Farrow, along with her sister, Prudence, were in India with the Beatles and the Maharishi. And so Dear Prudence came from that, as a lot of the songs from the White Album came from that period. My name is Prudence Farrow Bruns. I have a PhD in Sanskrit, and I've written a couple of books, but I think I'm most famous for being Dear Prudence from the Beatles song. So you got a couple connections right, right there. You got Polanski, right? Sharon Tate, Manson, Beatles. You got Mia Farrow, Maharishi, Beatles, right? Do you know where that movie was filmed? Rosemary's Baby? Yeah. Um, I'm going to guess in New York. New York is right. Do you know what building it was filmed? No, that I don't know. The Dakota. No shit. That, yes. I, did, that I did not know. Yes. Rosemary, go back to bed. You know you're not supposed to be up and around. I don't hear you. Yeah, I mean, the movie takes place in New York. The building they're going in and out of, their apartment, it's the Dakota. Huh. That, of course, is where John and Yoko, and Yoko still lives. Isn't that wild? Like, how these things do kind of cross throughout each other. But I think that says more about the Beatles and their extremely huge influence and, and, and the fact that they permeate everything. Right. You know, than it says about any actual conspiracy. Yeah, all, all the truth in that yeah. is, is actually pretty cool. There are three sides to every story. Yours mind and the truth and no one is lying yeah that's what i'm saying this is why it's interesting is because you know we could we could say conspiracy theory but but when i actually lay out to you truthful things it's wild well yeah and it's stuff that it's a lot of coincidence yeah it's all but a lot of really spooky kind of coincidence yeah. like I, I had no idea that rosemary's baby was filmed in dakota that's pretty cool but even if you go by the dakota it's a pretty imposing building i don't know if you've ever seen it 
I've never made a point. As, as many times as I've been to New York, I never made a point to visit the Dakota. I always go by it, just because. Manson, in addition to tying the Beatles to this, you know, race war idea, he was also tying the Bible to it. So there's Revolution number nine, there's Revelations nine. In Revelations nine, Manson saw the four Beatles as being the four angels that are referenced in Revelations as coming at the end of the world. Revelations talks about prophets of having the faces of men with the hair of women. That's... That's kind of funny. Yeah, and that might be the only time I ever opened a Bible. But I go and I read <laughs> Revelations. I can tell you things about Revelations because of this book and this link and all this stuff that, you know, only the most crazed afterworlder kind of person would, would tell you, right? Right. In the Bible, in Revelations, it says that the four angels were loose to slay a third part of men. That was where Manson thought he meant the white race. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw star fall from heaven onto the earth and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit the fifth angel of course is charles manson The song Helter Skelter, okay? People have said that this was really the beginning of heavy metal music. You know, I don't think of it like that, but when you look back, I can't remember anything else that was doing this. Right. Because it was before Led Zeppelin or anything like that. Before Zeppelin, yeah. And I guess I get hung up on that kind of thing. Like, do, do you get hung up on that? Like, do you want the full credit for maybe inventing heavy metal music? You know, I got so much credit for this and that, I don't need a bit more. The Beatles started so many different musical revolutions that people don't realize. The little flavor, psychedelic and all that stuff, I mean, that, that ultimately comes from the Beatles. George Harrison bringing in the sitar, that just opened up hot songs having world instrumentation and world music influences to where eventually you have the police basing a huge part of their sound on reggae music. All these doors are opened up by the Beatles and they're just massively influenced in ways that people can't even comprehend. The Beatles are all-encompassing and they're the alpha and the omega. Not liking the Beatles is like not liking the sun. I never knew you were such a Beatles fan. Of course I am. They were bigger than Jesus. These young hipsters trying to say the Beach Boys were better or the Beatles weren't. It's like, get the fuck out of here. All of the great music that you've listened to in the last 30, 40 years, yeah. all of it can be traced back to the Beatles. Right. Everything that's, that's of any value at all. When you have a kid picking up a guitar and, and he skipped Chuck Berry and the Beatles, I think that's really where the death of rock and roll is occurring. I mean, that connection that's being lost, you know, it's like they're cutting off the oxygen to the brain. Keith Emerson, founding member and keyboardist of Emerson, Lake & Palmer, and a prog rock legend, died Friday. Keith Emerson from Emerson, Lake & Palmer was 71 years old and was having uh, nerve issues and arthritic issues with his hands. He was getting to the point where he could not perform, and he had always been this very intense performer, and he killed himself. 
I got into Prague through the Beatles because Electric Light Orchestra, their original mission statement is, we want to pick up where the Beatles left off with I Am The Walrus. The Beatles have shifted away from pop into this more artistic thing, more highbrow. And so they started bringing in classical elements and not worrying about being danceable, not worrying about hit singles, not worrying about length of songs. The genesis of all of it ultimately comes from the Beatles. Another person the Beatles drove crazy is Brian Wilson. He he felt like he was in competition with the Beatles, and actually he was uh, he was working on Smile. He was working on Smile at the same time they were working on Sgt. Pepper. And then Sgt. Pepper came out, that was the sound that Brian Wilson wanted, and the Beatles got there first. Right. Now, if you listen to Smile, that was reimagined. Smile doesn't sound anything like Sgt. Pepper. Smile is is a bunch of um, it's a bunch of pieces of music. The same way that it, uh, that Brian Wilson recorded um, Good Vibrations. Yeah. It was uh, modular. That's what he was doing with with Smile, and it was just weird. It was like weird in like a wholesome weird way. You know what I mean? Like you've got Brian Wilson being told he's a genius got him having worked with Phil Spector and him kind of appropriating Phil Spector's weirdness and paranoia, him having mental issues and starting to deal with, you know, the realization of the abuse he had suffered from his father all those years. Then the Beatles just heaping praise upon him for Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds didn't do that great in the States. It was kind of a letdown, but in England it was massive. And it's sort of this Baroque kind of pop thing. The Beatles had put out, you know, Rubber Soul and Revolver. Brian Wilson was very influenced by that. And so he wanted to make more of an album feel, so he does Pet Sounds. The Beatles love that. They, they mention it publicly. They mention it to him. And now Brian feels he's in an arms race with the Beatles. Whomever gets this album out next is going to be the king. And he felt like he was on that playing field that he could do that. But didn't he get there first by releasing Good Vibrations? He releases Good Vibrations, and it is a brilliant song. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear. And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair I hear the sound of a gentle On the wind that lifts her perfume through the air even more brilliant once you hear the story of how it was recorded. I'm, I want to do a whole podcast on the Beach Boys, mostly revolving around this era of the Beach Boys, so I won't get way into it now. But that's a really brilliant pop single. That also kind of kicked him in a little bit, like, ah, I, I might be able to do this. He's working like a madman in the studio trying to put out this album that he is layering tons and tons of sounds on. And have you ever, have you ever seen that movie Walk Hard? The Dewey Cox story. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I saw the, where he's supposed to, going through his little Brian Wilson yeah, phase. Yeah, he's going through his Brian Wilson phase. And, and actually, the music that they're coming out with it almost sounds, sounds like, like Smile. <laughs> I wasn't dreaming, barely awake. My vanishing memories, the paradise. Yeah, it does. <laughs> And one of the characters goes, this sounds like five songs being played at once. And that's sometimes what Smile sounds like. It's still not finished yet. I'm hearing more aboriginal percussionists. And I want an army of didgeridoos. 50,000 didgeridoos.
Long story short is, Beatles got there first. And he just shook his head and he said, they did it all right. I said, they did what? He said, what I wanted to do was smile. He went mad trying to basically keep up with them and then having the stool kicked out from under him when the album came out. Right. And he felt like, that's it, I've failed. It's over. Right. You know, in his mind. If it had come out first, I think that it might have took a little bit of the shine off of how much of a massive jump that uh, the Beatles went through from Revolver to Sgt. Pepper. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I don't think Smile would have been the record that so many rock stars would have said I was influenced by. But I think that there would have there would have, it would have taken a little bit of the glean off of Sgt. Pepper. I had read uh, McCartney was in L.A. and went to the studio. Paul goes over to a piano and says, I'll play you a piece of our new record. And he sits down with the piano and plays She's Leaving Home. Him solo on piano. And then he gets up and says, better catch up and leaves. Oh, wow. I don't know if that's true, but that might have been... That's what... both arrogant and brilliant. I mean... <laughs> that was the end of Brian Wilson as a creative force, honestly. I mean, he did some other stuff after that, but... But he... it was nowhere near. Nowhere near. Nowhere near. And then, and then, of course, I guess, what, about 10 years ago, he finished Smile. But he didn't finish it by himself. No. It took, like, what, 37 years? Well, he wouldn't even talk about Smile. You, somebody would ask him to play Heroes and Villains, right. and he wouldn't. These tracks would kind of filter, you know, kind of come out a little bit on Beach Boys' record, and they would always be the best song on the record, but it didn't come out as a whole piece. And to me, it's really cool record. I like it. There are certain tracks, like Surf's Up, which is magnificent. Two, three, four. The diamond necklace play the pawn. Hand in hand, some drummed along. Oh, to a handsome man at Baton. A blind class aristocracy. Back through the opera glass, you see the pit. Surf's Up is a beautiful song. I still listen to it. Every once in a while, I'll put on Smile just to listen to Surf's Brian Wilson abandons Smile. He puts on tons of weight, just stays in bed for three or four years. Hence the Bare Naked Lady song, Lying in Bed, just like Brian Wilson did. Did you ever see the documentary about uh, his making of Smile? He's just out there, and even now, even to this day, he's never fully come back. I never had a religious feeling. And the Beatles to me were actually meant more to me than any religion because I learned from the Beatles. Well, this is what I want to do with future podcasts. You know, we did Kiss. When you do an artist like that, even though there's lots of bullshit and all this stuff, I mean, it was really hard to edit that down to less than an hour. And the Beatles would be impossible. Well, we would have to do like Beatles. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots I don't think anybody wants that. I think this kind of thing is cool. And I think that maybe, you know, going, fu- going forward in future podcasts, we could really limit something. Like, I'd say, for example, if we were going to talk about the Rolling Stones, we may have many episodes, but... Have one just on Keith, you know, Keith Richards songs, or maybe just one on the Brian Jones era, you know, or just one, this is one I want to do, on the Rolling Stones kind of soul music side, you know, the songs where um, uh, Mick sings in falsetto and such, 
Um, so I don't even really think of that, but I think that's kind of a cool idea. I need a fix because I'm gone down. Number eight. Uh. Number eight. Uh. Number eight. Wait, I took the little blue pill. Not that pill, man. <laughs> Number eight. Uh. Okay, let's go drop acid with the Beatles. This is the Untitled Podcast. Can you take me back where I came from? Can you take me back? Can you take me back where I came from? Brother, can you take me back? Can you take me back? Can you take me where I came from? This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck.